Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. I'm Marcos Molitsis. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Kos The Brief. It's weekly show about politics. Today, I am running solo. Carrie's taking some well-deserved time off. It is summertime, so we're going to be... Uh, we're going to be uh, back and forth, you know, uh, either guest host or running solo through the through the summer. So it is Carrie's turn to take some time off. Today, we're going to be talking about the gun epidemic in this country. And there's no re- need to wait. I'm going to bring on uh, today's guest. He is Igor Volsky. He is the executive director of Guns Down America. He's one of the most passionate gun control advocates that I have ever met or I had a pleasure of, of working with in my years in politics. He is also the author of the book, Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns. Igor, <laughs> thank, first of all, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for that descriptor of passionate. You know, some people say too passionate. No. But I, I, I like that, that that is a plus for you. So Igor, let me just start really quickly. This, this topic is, it's heavy. It, 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 it's hard. And I'm, I'm going to admit that, that with the Buffalo shootings and the Uvelda shootings, I, I, I can't read all the stories. It's, it's too much. It's overwhelming. This is your world. How do you do it? How do you, how do you deal with that grief and that tragedy on a, and you make this very clear. This is not a one-time event or a rare event. This is weekly, daily almost. Yeah, no, I I really appreciate you asking that. You know, for a long time, I really avoided working on this issue, thinking about this issue. And you'll remember before the Newtown shooting in December of 2012, Democrats didn't really talk about guns. There was no gun policy. You know, I at the time worked at the Center for American Progress and we had nobody working on guns before Newtown. It just wasn't an issue that anyone thought was particularly important. That of course all changed after Newtown and eventually I really kind of stumbled into this issue entirely by accident and faced with this very challenge uh, that you're describing. How do you continue to do work on an issue that is so structurally challenging, right? There's an amendment that creates challenges. There are structural challenges within the Senate that make progress very difficult. I'm, of course, talking about the filibuster, the overrepresentation of rural states. And then there's a very successful and powerful lobby that was able to take an issue and really generate an entire identity around it. So it's not just about the gun. It's everything the gun represents in terms of masculinity, uh, in terms of racism, in terms of conservative values. And it's a tough that those are tough mountains to climb. And the way I kind of keep going and make sure that I'm not you know, kind of always uh, in some fetal position crying somewhere is I actually do, Marcos, exactly what you do is I spend very little time 
following or reading the, the personal stories because that to me would just be incredibly difficult. And I actually find myself, even though I work on this issue so closely, I don't know a lot of the details, the kind of those dramatic details of, of the shootings. I don't know any of the yeah. shooters' names by design. Um, and I just really try to focus on what strategy can I carve out? What political strategy, advocacy strategy can I carve out to make progress on this issue, to change the system that allows this kind of carnage to happen? Uh, otherwise, uh, I think, as you point out, it would just be uh, too difficult. Yeah, it's an interesting. Yeah, I'm actually kind of surprised to, to hear that, right? Because you you think some a gun control advocate is going to be deep into the the nitty gritty, but it, it it is so much, and it's sort of analogous to my coverage of of the Ukraine war. It's one of my big focuses right now, and and I I've been covering the logistics and the mechanics of war as opposed to the massacres, the mm-hmm. war crimes, because once you start getting into that stuff, it, it's like it's too much. And I don't think you know this, but I was born in Kiev uh, and lived in Kiev oh, for the first five years of my life. And so when the war actually started, not to derail us, but when the war actually started, I made a very conscious decision not to watch the cable news coverage of it because I didn't want to see the pictures, but to really only listen the rate to the rate NPR, BBC, some of the Russian independent radio. Um, and so I took a very similar page, I think, to what you were describing and to what I was just describing on the, on the gun issue. Yeah, you have to you have to modulate regulate because mm-hmm. again it's 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 dark it's dark material and and but it also has become background noise in a lot of ways and it, and it took it wasn't even 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 the the murders in buffalo i think were sort of fading and had become background noise and it t- took like a new town sort of situation where you have young children being massacred in 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 large numbers to sort of jolt people back into action. And so that has to be frustrating from you. I, I saw, I had a, unfortunately I don't have it in front of me, but you, you wrote a tweet saying between Buffalo and between Uvalde, there was a large number of mass gun shootings in the country that, that completely, you know, not only had gone under the radar, totally went under the radar. Nobody knows these existed except people directly in those impacted communities. So again, this is a situation where you're, you're trying to get people to care about something that is incredibly important, but absent extreme tragedy, it doesn't get a lot of attention, right? Yeah, and you know, it, it doesn't. And that's the challenge is that outside of an event that absolutely dominates the headlines, you kind of feel like you're screaming into the wilderness. Um, and to me, moments like like Uvalde are so important because they underscore and frankly demand leadership that is missing on this issue uh, almost you know in all other days of the year. And what I mean by that is, you know, we have leaders, President Biden, uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who promise us when they need our votes that they will prioritize gun violence prevention, that they will fight to make progress. Yet, when they have the power to move the ball down the court, uh, to change the script on this issue, they choose not to. And to me, Marcos, over the last couple of days, that has been the source of such incredible and deep frustration. Because 
at this point, I don't care what you have to say. We don't need you to to console the nation every single time. I mean, it's it's nice. But what we would like, and I think what the American people would like, and certainly the survivors all across the country to whom you made these promises, Mr. President, what they would like is a clear and tangible plan of what you will do to help make progress on this issue. And the fact that the White House has chosen to cast this president as a simple bystander who's completely outsourced the work of making a legislative deal or um, or, or doing things uh, through executive action to, to other people and instead have decided that he's best uh, as some cheerleader asking others to act uh, or explaining to reporters all the things he can't do, to me is frankly a real shame. And I know that certainly the many of the survivors who, who I work with every single day to whom the president, again, made personal commitments are incredibly frustrated that he hasn't, for instance, opened a White House office of gun violence prevention, that there isn't a single senior staffer in the White House whose sole job is to focus on this issue. Not one, by the way, not one. Um, and that he chose after the, these twin, twin shootings not to outline tangible steps that he would be taking uh, to, to help us build safer communities, that he allowed Congress to leave on a two-week vacation rather than bring them all in and use those 30 years, of, you remember this, this 30 yeah. years of experience <laughs> and he had of bringing Democrats and Republicans oh, yeah, to to get big things done. But none of that matters anymore. None of that apparently was real when it comes to this issue. And I'll say one other thing, then I'll end rant, rant here, is what is most shocking to me in this moment is that other voices in my movement and other voices in the broader progressive movement don't expect him to do more, that he gets a complete pass for not having any kind of plan, for not having any kind of vision or any kind of strategy as Americans are dying, as kids are dying. And I think it's very unique to this issue uh, that if it, we had a foreign uh, attack of some sort, uh, if there was something happening suddenly with climate, you would expect this president to actually do things as opposed to just say things. Oh, um, baby formula, right? Yeah, baby formula is a perfect example. And there's the problem is there's just no muscle memory on this issue. There's no muscle memory of what action actually looks like. And what I've been arguing for the last couple of weeks is it's his responsibility to create, to change that script and create that kind of muscle memory. So the, uh, Igor, I know you're not, you're, you're, you're sensitive to electoral considerations, right? I know you're not divorced from electoral realities, right? So the counter argument would be that the gun issue motivates conservatives to turn out while the progressive liberal base has never been electorally motivated by this issue. So by creating a, an office of, you know, gun um, policy, whatever it might be called, by creating that, they would be giving ammunition to Fox News and the, 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 the crazy, you know, sphere, the right wing sphere. But because of the filibuster and because of the Supreme Court, there's really not a lot of tangible things that can actually be done. So politically, electorally, it hits you. 
when from a policy standpoint, those those there's not a lot to work with. How would you respond to that? You know, and that's exactly, I think, what the White House believes is that if he leans too heavily into this issue, as you point out, he will animate the other side and that will produce electoral losses in the midterm. And what I submit is that if a politician cannot take 90 percent support for background checks, it's a little small for assault weapons, but it's all around around their 90, 80%, and cannot translate that support into tangible political pressure, then maybe that's not a very good politician. Isn't that the story of the Democratic Party? Well, <laughs> on immigration, on guns. And I take the point that there are structural challenges, and I'm not suggesting any of this is easy, and I'm not saying that if the president, as I'm urging him to do, uh, travels the country to impacted communities and tries to apply uh, that pressure to to key senators, that he would somehow overcome uh, the filibuster or that he would somehow convince Republicans who have built an entire identity over making it easier for people to kill each other, right? That's the brand. I'm not suggesting that. But what I am saying is if the problem we're trying to solve for is, how is it? that all of these Americans, so many more Americans, want to see background checks and we still don't have it. Why is that? I submit to you that part of the reason is because our leaders or or Democratic leaders fail to fight every single time. They simply do not, they choose, they choose not to put up a fight on this issue. Because imagine if this president, the vice president, his cabinet barnstormed the country, made their case for why we need legislation to tighten our gun laws, for why we need to invest in the communities closest to the pain of everyday gun violence, and fought, fought, used all of that 30 years of experience to try to bring folks together and get something really tangible done in the Senate, some real movement in the Senate. They may fail. Absolutely, they may fail. But then they can turn around to voters and say, we tried. Here's the contrast. We are fighting for your lives. These guys are literally pumping guns into your communities. I need you to vote for us so that next time we can get this across the finish line after November. That, to me, is a much more compelling argument for why voters need to vote on this issue and actually meets voters where they are, as opposed to the current argument, which is, you know, it's just too hard. I know you yeah. elected us to do tough things, but it's hard. Look at Mitch McConnell. He, he, won't, he won't agree with you. Know, I mean, I, that, to me, is not motivating anybody, and that only perpetuates this cycle. I don't know. Mitch McConnell's interested in looking at school doors. Right. There might be some new school door policy coming out. That that might do something. So, you know, um, it, it's interesting to me. The the numbers are, are clear, right? Uh, Americans do strongly support sensible restrictions on gun ownership. A plain reading of the, of the Constitution says well-regulated, right? I mean, this should not be controversial. Obviously, we have a Supreme Court that is, is out of control, radicalized, and, uh, and uh, unaccountable. But as some, I don't think people really feel safer if they go to Walmart and there's some a-hole walking around with a freaking AR-15. I don't think people feel safer. And, and I actually know this. Because I'm, I'm Salvadoran and I grew up in El Salvador and I visit regularly and, and gun 
there's a lot of guns floating around in the streets, right? Every store has a person in front with, with, a, with a rifle, a guard with a rifle. I mean, crime is so rampant that everybody has to carry, and it doesn't add to any feeling of safety. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And I would argue that it is crime is rampant because of the easy access to weapons because of the civil, you know, 10 year civil war back in the 80s. So do you have any sense? Do people actually want these proud boy type assholes walking around with with rifles around their children? Is that something that anybody really is excited about? So you look at polling uh, and you don't get the sense that people want the Proud Boys uh, running around with firearms, but you do get the very clear sense that people believe that having a gun in the home helps protect them and their family. They don't think that your neighbor having a gun necessarily increases. <laughs> but me, me having a gun, that will do it. Uh, and we know that the truth here is something entirely different, that the research is conclusive that bringing a firearm into your home triples the risk of suicide, doubles the risk of homicide, that you are far more likely to use that gun against yourself or others than you are to use it against an, intru- an intruder into your house. The, the number of defensive uses of guns as opposed uh, when compared with with all kinds of different gun deaths, uh, the contrast there is just striking. Um, but it's hard to counteract that emotional sense that a firearm provides safety with data and numbers. And that never works, even though the science is pretty clear, but it's also the case that this feeling that I'm describing that Americans have is relatively new. This wasn't the case 30, 40, 50 years ago uh, when people really felt like, oh, you know, firearms are innately dangerous in almost anybody's hands, right? We look at, for instance, our current conversation about police, right? The, the most trained in our society to use firearms. You look at, for instance, the rates at which they hit their intended target. I mean, they're dramatic. They're shockingly, shockingly low. No, people don't realize it's hard to actually hit something. Yeah. It's it's, it's not that easy. Exactly. And so the fact that attitudes changed historically, which was the result of NRA propaganda, of uh, the work that gun manufacturers did, of what we saw on our television screens during both Iraq wars, by the way, that in fact had had a big impact on the kinds of guns that gun manufacturers started marketing to civilians. We saw many more assault weapons in the aftermath of, of, um, of the Iraq invasion in 2002-2003. Uh, uh, um, and so uh, it gives me hope that we can change attitudes back to what they were so they actually reflect the science on this point. But it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of work from our political leaders to stop talking about responsible gun owners, and which... I would argue is a very racist construct, but we can we can come back to that um, and start talking about the innate danger of firearms in almost anyone's hands. Right. Sounds radical in today's politics. Um, we need cultural leaders to do the same because that at the core, Marcos, you're getting at the very challenge of our issue is that people believe they need the guns. When COVID hit, they ran out and they purchased guns in droves. And so uh, figuring out how you uh, untangle that, uh, I think will go a long way towards shifting attitudes, cultural attitudes and making progress on this issue. 
So let's actually talk a little bit about more because you, you talk about the cultural aspect. And I think you're 100% right that this is no longer a policy debate. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't been for a while. This is now a core identity that the conservative movement has made belief in God, in guns, and <laughs> Donald Trump, I guess, whatever. It, they, they, there's very few core, core beliefs left. And gun ownership becomes a really solid part of that. So when you talk about changing culturally, that cultural perception, do you have anything tangible that could start addressing that? Yeah. Uh, so, so this is this is a really big question in the movement. And I should just back up and say that there's actual research here that looked at how NRA magazines and other kinds of NRA communications talked about the gun issue uh, to to their members. And the language they used wasn't how, you know, progressives or you and I would talk about a policy, which is like this provision and that provision and and, and this, uh, you know, percentage decrease and that percentage decrease and this is how it's safer it would be, right? They used all of these terms that, you know, wrap the issue in the American flag, um, uh, defined uh, gun owners as kind of the most patriotic people in the country and those who oppose gun ownership as like these crazy lefty communists, etc. Um, and, and that uh, kind of conversation, right, happened over the course of decades and really got us into a place where folks tune out that kind of policy talk and just embrace this identity language. So I'm just trying to say that this was uh, a systematic uh, um, uh, decision. Uh, it was a decision that they implemented over a series of years to create the very, um, you know, to, to create the space where, uh, you know, identity is so much harder to chip away than than some kind of policy preference. And so when you ask about, well, how do you tangibly begin to push away from that? Part of what you have to do, part of what we have to do, or gun violence prevention advocates, is figure out how to create an identity around safety, right? So folks know there's an organization called Moms Demand Action, right? That's an effort to to imbue um, th- this side of the issue with 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 a with a parental identity, right? To say that being a mother means. Uh, you support tighter gun laws. You think guns should be locked up if you have them in the house, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's also some work being done in the movement that really uh, tries to push uh, younger folks, uh, particularly in the teenage years, to start thinking about guns differently, um, to start um, uh, uh, pushing entertainment companies uh, and content creators to tell different stories about firearm ownership. So ending this idea that a gun makes you more of a man uh, or that a gun is the way you protect yourself and your family um, and telling stories that actually reflect the real experiences uh, that people have uh, with firearms that are not nearly uh, as romantic as those tropes uh, would have you believe. So those are, I think, that, that, that I think moves us in the right direction. But, uh, you know, it's not easy. Uh, and there's no kind of, you know, magic light switch to make it all go away. It's going to require a, a willingness to tackle the danger of firearms head on um, and to really think about how do you communicate that in a values, emotional driven way to your audience. Yeah, you know, it's interesting um, because 
you know, immediately when you talked, you know, when you when you said that, I thought Hollywood, right, and and Die Hard, and and just a glorification of of weapons. And I'm not gonna lie, those are like my favorite movies, John Wick, right? Like I love John Wick. Die Hard three is the best, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, but then you you look, you know, Japan gets to see Die Hard three and John Wick, and I mean, it, this is again, it, it really sort of it's centered on our own specific. Uh, circumstances and Joe Biden was, you know, said like I was on a plane and I just realized nobody else has this. I don't know if he really had just realized that. I hope he knew already. <laughs> but what what is what is that unique special sauce that makes us so susceptible to this when the rest of the industrialized world well, doesn't have well, to deal with it? I um I'm not suggesting that entertainment uh, and uh, I didn't think you were, but yeah, and, and, I, and, I inserted yeah, this. Right, right, right. And you. Bruce Willis uh, and Jeremy, <laughs> I, big combination for that movie, by the way, but they're somehow responsible because uh, we know the research says that's not the case. Right. And we know internationally folks watch that movie <clears throat> in Japan and, and, and the homicide rates in Japan are like five a year. Right. So, yeah. um, so, right. So you have to look at what are, what are other, what are other reasons? And Marcos, it's hard to escape the unique American history that is built on conquest of other people, of land, uh, that um, brought guns into that history that first subjugated Native Americans uh, and then used the firearm to subjugate uh, Africans, who of course were brought here uh, as slaves, who then used the firearm to push westward to obliterate uh, entire indigenous communities. It, it was during this time, um, particularly in, uh, uh, in the 1850s and 60s, that firearms uh, first became kind of mass produced and, and really sold in a much, in a much larger way. Uh, and some of the early American manufacturers recognized very quickly that there's real power uh, in wrapping the firearm uh, in this notion of uh, manifest destiny. Uh, as the country expanded westward uh, in this sense of, uh, particularly as, as we saw urbanization uh, in the early 1900s, of defining the firearm owner as the individual who will protect you from those immigrants uh, who are going to, you know, attack you and, 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 and get you killed. So um, rugged, too. Very yeah, rugged. Right. Yeah, yeah. That rugged individuality, right, that the American myth is based on. Um, manufacturers realized early on their marketing departments did that they can sell more guns if they imbued their uh, sales pitches with that kind of imagery, with that kind of mythology. And they, they did so um, deliberately uh, over the course of, of decades and decades. And so I think you combine that kind of marketing with our history and you begin to see, and you know, you can bring it up all, all the way to, you know, through the through the civil rights movement and how, um, and the Jim Crow era before that, and how, uh, you know, firearms were used to subjugate um, African Americans quite brutally uh, as they as they fought for power. There's a great book, by the way, called The Second that really tells the racial history of the Second Amendment. Ellie Mistel was on last week, and he talked about how the Second Amendment really was was for to suppress uh, slave. Um, rebellions. Yes, that, that was that was a core. That's what motivated Southerners to to insert that in the Bill of Rights. 
Yeah, so so the, the history is is a, is a bit more complicated than that, but yes, there there were certainly a contingent. <laughs> there's certainly a contingent. I, I will complicate anything. There's certainly a contingent um, that that really that for whom this was incredibly important, right? And who thought yeah. that the the um, uh, that the only the militias uh, had the militias had to be armed uh, in order to uh, to to uh, to put down slave rebellions, and who really feared that you know if you had some kind of standing army uh, that they simply wouldn't wouldn't work hard enough. Uh, so yes, absolutely. And, and so anyway, so that's, that's part of, you know, that's part of that uh, history. Um, and so I think that when you look at, well, what makes America unique, um, it's, it's those pieces and you fast forward all the way to modern day. And I think you quickly recognize that even still here we are in 2022, you cannot divorce firearm ownership, particularly for people for whom this is a political identity, from notions of masculinity, from notions of white power, from notions of, uh, well, I guess those two, right, and gun ownership. And it's almost like a braid uh, that is all uh, braided together. And until we can figure out as a movement, as a country, of how do you begin to separate those different notions, um, we are really going to have that challenge. Uh, and I submit to you that I think um, other nations, you look at Australia, you look at New Zealand, um, that so successfully uh, were able to reduce gun violence with some real stringent reforms, they didn't, or, or at least maybe had the political will uh, to overcome similar uh, historical challenges. And here they're still, you know, they're still very strong. One of the really interesting phenomenons that I, I believe it's, it's, is very unique to this country is, is this notion that, okay, like you said, people may want to have that one handgun in their home. That makes them feel safe, right? But there are <laughs> people who buy more, you know, they buy multiple guns. They build entire arsenals. Do you have a sense what drives that, and in, in, in clearly in a lot of these militia circles, right, but what drives that desire to, to buy more? And, and it's almost a cultural imperative. The more guns you have, the more American, the more conservative you are. Yeah. I mean, of course, the gun companies love that. Well, the gun companies love that and encourage that behavior, right? There's an entire community uh, that encourages you to buy. Right, yeah, that encourages you to buy the newest gun. Um, gun, manu- gun manufacturers very actively market uh, to that community. They're a big part of, of the market. Um, it's part of that culture. Uh, and I think a lot of it, frankly, is really a political statement, um, a political statement of, oh, yeah, you want to come take my guns? You know, here they all are. Uh, that's, you know, I think that's fairly deliberate. Um uh, and so, uh, you know, and then the other piece of it, I think part of what the NRA was so good at early on, and you, you may remember this, that in the early uh, 1990s, the NRA really invested a lot in trying to 
attract government separatists into their organization. They advertised in their magazines. They went to their conferences. These are obviously folks who, you know, wanted to um, to separate from America in some way or to overthrow the government in some way, right? Some things, some things actually don't change. Um, and they really inserted uh, to a large degree into, into uh, the conservative identity this idea of insurrection and this idea that the Second Amendment supported the idea of insurrection. Um, right. And so uh, part of it is that. Part of it is having firearms in order to protect yourself from a tyrannical government. Um, and that's an attitude that the NRA encouraged, encouraged very heavily, and I would argue is in many ways the ideological uh, uh, created the ideological bedrock for the insurrection that we saw uh, on January 6th. Yeah, no, very much so. And I, I always found that to be a little bit hilarious, considering that if <laughs> you have a government with actual war making capabilities, right, these yahoos with AR-15s wouldn't last very long in an actual real rebellion. Um, but it's it's this sort of myth building. It's it's their Wolverines um, fantasy, the, the cheesy 80s movie with Patrick Swayze fending off Cuban, <laughs> the Cuban invaders in, in a small Colorado town. And, but it all, yeah, definitely feeds into that. So you bring, you talk about the NRA and the, uh, the subtitle to your, to your book was how to defeat the NRA. Can we defeat the NRA? <laughs> uh, look, I certainly think I get asked this a lot. It's like, Igor, you're on a book about how to defeat them. So what do we do? <laughs> I certainly think, and since I wrote the book, uh, that the NRA uh, is probably weaker now than it ever was in terms of, you know, publicly, they've been embarrassed by scandal after scandal after scandal. First, you know, this whole thing with uh, Maria Butina, who uh, was, which was an effort by the Russian government to kind of create greater divisions within American politics by exploiting the gun issue that the NRA kind of got sucked into, knowingly or not knowingly, is um, is, is something folks argue about. Uh, there's all this corruption that leaked out uh, in the way that Wayne Lott Pierre, the head of the NRA, really just milks the organization to fund his lavish lifestyle. Um, it just reinforces for me that the way rich people stay rich is they just keep on spending other people's money. You read some of those, some of the stuff that came out in the investigations and the court cases, and it's... It and he's still there, right? He's still there. He just got reelected. Yeah, so he, he ain't leaving. Um uh, and all of that, I think, is, is you know, causes some embarrassment uh, and creates, I think, uh, some weakness uh, in terms of uh, how they've how they're perceived publicly, how they're perceived in the mainstream. But at the same time, you know, we are an incredibly divided country, to state the very obvious, um, and the NRA thrives in that kind of division where they can create uh, an entirely different fact pattern. And they also, I think, thrive from the fact that, yes, they're the largest lobby in this space, but there are all kinds of other groups on the state level and the federal level that are oftentimes actually to the right of the NRA. So one clear example now would be, you know, the NRA will tell you publicly that they support some measure of red flag law, which is this legislation that would allow a court uh, to take guns from individuals who are deemed a threat to themselves or others. Um, the NRA will publicly say they 
support some version of that measure. 19 states and D.C. have it currently. Um, but there are other groups who, who say that, that, that even that's too far, that that's too much of a slippery slope. Um, and so they operate in an ecosystem uh, where there are a lot of loud uh, pretty radical voices, and they operate within a much larger conservative movement for whom guns is a top issue, uh, yes. who vote on guns with or without the NRA or with the NRA being this powerful or the NRA being that powerful. Right. And the great contrast is, is that that doesn't, that doesn't hold true on our side, right? If you ask the progressive, Name your top five issues that make you a progressive. I bet you guns isn't in the top five for most yeah. people you ask. And Probably everybody, more. everybody you ask will have a different five. We'll, everybody we'll you ask, five. or we'll have a different five. Exactly. You yeah. ask the conservative, they are definitely in the top five. And so, you know, the NRA uh, can, can power can 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 wane and grow, but the fact that they, by design, uh, through a guy named Harlan Carter who led, who really created the modern NRA, by design, uh, uh, really planted the gun issue within the very center of the conservative identity. It guaranteed, obviously, for generations. Uh, that this issue ain't going away, and, and we don't we don't have that figure. And, and just to sort of hammer that point, if you ask if you ask conservatives, all conservatives, what their top five issues are, you're only, you're going to get guns, abortion, lower taxes will be in every single one of them's top five list. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and to not to belabor the point, but liberals don't have that, and it's it partly it's it because we're more diverse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't all look the same. We're not all white men, Southerners. Uh, and, and so it, it's a lot easier for them to hone in on those specific issues. And, and they've been able to use it. And I always I always wonder what would have happened if the tobacco lobby had been as smart as the gun lobby had been and turned the Marlboro man into that cultural signifier for a conservative. And you're not going to take away my cigarette. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- there's an alternate reality where they could have pulled that off and they just well, didn't they- realize well, and, and they almost did. You know, we in the 90s as a country, uh, not you and me, but as a country, were able to begin to make progress against gun manufacturers in terms of um, changing the way they create their product through litigation following the tobacco model. However, and, and your, your I'm sure listeners know this, in 2006, I always screw this up, 2005 or 2006, um, the Bush administration uh, pushed through Congress legislation that protects gun manufacturers from almost and dealers and, impo- and importers from almost any kind of liability. Um, uh, so that is preventing individuals harmed by guns from suing uh, gun manufacturers, and thus created a shield where manufacturers can produce incredibly dangerous weapons. And by the way, that increases every year. The weapons actually get more dangerous. And they're not uh, held accountable. There are no consequences for them, uh, like there were for, for, for the tobacco companies. And so that's another you know, real substantial hurdle in making progress. So uh, you, know, you talk about George Bush. And if we talk about the Supreme Court, obviously elections are a big part of this and, and voting and they're able to vote on this. And it's a huge advantage in able to push this agenda because the ballot box actually matters. And we are facing a November election where, where, um, where historically the party in power is less activated. 
hoping it's not the case this year. But it's going to be either way. It's going to be a bit of a dogfight. And if we lose control of Congress, then none of this is. It's just going to get worse. I mean, it's not even a question of can we make things better. It's going to get worse. So it's really important for people to to turn out and vote. But is there anything within the current constraints of our political system that might actually help the situation better? Yes, I'm so glad you asked. Yes, (laughs) but I'll add, before I tell you, I will add to your litany of very intimidating problems that we also are awaiting uh, a decision from the Supreme Court uh, that could very much expand the meaning of the Second Amendment, could allow more firearms into public spaces, without restrictions and regulation, which of course would then lead to more gun deaths. Uh, that's an incredible challenge to the to the movement and we'll find out kind of where that stands um, in a couple of days and weeks. And so the question though is given these obstacles, these grand obstacles of the court, the filibuster, um, this cultural identity, what can we do, right? How can we continue to fight for our lives? And the good news is, uh, as I see it, is there's really no way, no reason to reinvent the wheel here. That what we've learned from successful movements in America, whether they be uh, the civil rights movement or the marriage equality movement, or to some degree the climate and immigration movements, is they very strategically thought about who are other powerful, non-political voices that we can pull into our cause who are able to reach different audiences, uh, who are able to push people in a different kind of apolitical way, often cultural way. Um, and, and maybe we could, we could use those voices, given the inaction on the federal level, we can use them uh, to make progress. And the voices that have often, and this is just the reality, uh, have helped us uh, get to where we're going are business voices, are are corporate voices. Um, And you'll remember that early on uh, in the fight for marriage equality, there was a real concerted effort to organize LGBTQ employees at large corporations for them to push their employers to start offering benefits uh, to um, to same-sex uh, couples and folks in, in civil unions. And that really opened up a conversation about uh, that issue in a way that we simply hadn't heard before, that you begin to really hear businesses making a business case for why offering benefits to, uh, to, to same-sex partners was important to them, how, how, how it was able to grow the economy, for instance, how it was able to, to build and improve their business. And it kind of chipped away at the kind of conversations we were having uh, about the cultural division. Right? Certainly your co-host uh, knows so much about this, Carrie. Um, yeah, yeah. So, she says hi, by the way. <laughs> I'm sorry she couldn't make it. Um, and so, you know, what we at Guns Down America, the organization I lead, try to do is replicate some of that success. So a clear example would be, In Buffalo, you had a shooting at a grocery store, right, Tops. It reminds all of us that businesses with storefronts, grocery stores, are oftentimes at the front line of America's gun crisis, right? And uh, we ran some numbers and found out that between January 2020 
through the top shooting, uh, May 14th, in that window, and a window when a lot of us were at home because of COVID, you had over 448 gun incidents in or around major grocery stores all across the country. That is mind boggling, right? Um, And so that tells us that because stores have to deal uh, with our epidemic of gun violence, because you can imagine businesses uh, having to increase costs on insurance, on retaining employees, not to mention what it does to, to customers coming into your business, particularly in areas uh, that have high rates of gun violence. They are part, they're, they are facing this problem every single day. And I would argue they have to be part of the solution. And we as customers of those stores have to push them to be part of those solutions. So then why is it that some of our uh, largest uh, uh, grocery chains across the country, why do they still give money to NRA-backed lawmakers who just make the problem worse? Why aren't they uh, deliberately and strategically investing in community violence intervention programs in their communities that can successfully identify the small number of individuals responsible for most of the gun violence, everyday gun violence in an urban area and offer them services that, that cause them to change their decisions, uh, offer them opportunities that uh, reduce homicides in communities? Why aren't these stores and these businesses using their their clout, both publicly and privately, to lobby uh, for systemic change on this issue? They should be part of the solution. And we, as customers of all of these brands, should push them to do that, right? Because they operate under different incentives than our political actors. And I think... You know, all this frustration we had of it never changes, it never changes, it never changes. Uh, Yes, I am also frustrated. It's incredibly challenging. But what I'm arguing is that if you channel uh, all of that rage into, um, into pushing voices that could be doing so much more, we could actually transform this entire debate in the same way that we, uh, that we saw great transformation uh, around marriage equality in the same way that we've been able to make progress on climate where businesses now understand that if they don't deal yeah. with the consequences of climate change, <clears throat> they're screwed moving into the future. And so I think, you know, I think that's what gives me hope. <laughs> that sounds amazing. So how can, can, uh, how can people help you work on this mission? Sure. So people participate. Yes, please go to gunsdownamerica.org. There you will see uh, the very campaign I described, the deadliest places to buy groceries in America. Um, Walmart, right? uh, Well, Walmart, Walmart, given its size uh, and and presence is number one on that list. But I think it speaks to your point, though, where these these are companies with huge political clout. Exactly. Huge political clout and real trendsetters. Uh, in the industry, we uh, ran a campaign right after the El Paso shooting at Walmart in 2019, ran a campaign in a huge coalition that pushed Walmart uh, to, to back away from gun sales, uh, that pushed Walmart to reconsider its political giving. Um, and we're really successful in getting the store to, to meet some of those objectives. So, you know, it, it really suggests to me that there's a growing appetite and that there's a growing understanding from businesses that A, customers expect 
them to mirror their values, number one. Uh, and number two, and especially for, for young people for whom, you know, this is a settled issue. Uh, I think they very much understand the longevity of the brand uh, demands that they fall on the right side uh, of, of this public health crisis. So folks should go to gunsdownamerica.org uh, for more information about how they can get involved to support the work that we do. Because, you know, I always say uh, great things take a great deal of work and certainly it cannot be done without all of you. Amen. Igor Volsky, he is the executive director of Guns Down America. You just saw you just saw that passion that I talked about. <laughs> I, I I didn't I didn't oversell uh, what Igor brings to the table on this incredibly important but difficult issue. So Igor, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's the show for today. As always. So always remember, we have an election coming in November. It is the most important election in our lifetime. I know it's a cliche. I know we say that every time, but it's true. It's just as true as it was the last time we said it was the most important election of our lifetime. Our very democracy, our rights that we cherish are on the ballot. So please, please, please work as hard as you can. Get everybody you know involved, engaged, interested in the election. Midterm elections are elections based on voter intensity, how much people care. And we have to care more than Republicans. We have to. We don't have a choice. So thank you so much for joining me, for being part of that solution. Thanks to Igor for talking about this critically important gun issue. It's a tough one. But I have to say his solution of engaging corporate America and fighting that cultural battle like, like the gay rights movement did and the climate change movement is doing right now, it makes a lot of sense because we can't depend on our political system until we fix that. And we can't fix that until we win a clear majority in the Senate, hold the House, and make sure that a Republican doesn't take the White House in two years. Thanks so much to everybody that makes the brief possible behind the scenes. The producer, Walter, and Kara, and uh, Dorothy, and Paul, and <laughs> so many people that make it happen at the Lake Coast. Thanks to everybody, and thanks to you for joining in, being part of uh, The Brief, joining me every week. Thanks so much. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week. <laughs>